Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today is very special. It is special for a couple of reasons. One is that today is the third anniversary of this podcast. Yes, I started this journey three years ago. And for the third anniversary, I have the new music composed by my wonderful husband, Brad Slavic. The second reason that today is a very special episode is because I have an extremely special guest. Alka Joshi was born in India and raised in the United States since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of Arts. Joshi's debut novel, The Henna Artist, became a New York Times bestseller, a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, and is being developed into an episodic TV series. The sequel, The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, released June 2021, and already on bestseller lists, will be followed by a third book, in the trilogy in 2023. And now, friends, pull up a seat, sit back, relax, and enjoy author conversations with the one and only Alka Joshi, the author of The Hen Artist and The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. Alka Joshi, welcome to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. I am beyond excited and obviously humbled, honored that you're here with me. So tell me a bit about yourself. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I am 63 years old. I am a full-time author. I am working on my third novel in what is being called the Jaipur Trilogy. And who knows where I will go after this, Um, you know, in terms of writing, in terms of creativity. I've spent my whole life being a creative person. So I started off life being an artist and I drew and I painted and I sketched and, and I always thought, oh, someday I'll probably be an artist. But then I thought maybe I will be something related to the arts, like I'll work as a curator in a museum or I'll work as an art director in an ad agency. And uh, But everybody always kept channeling me towards writing. They just said, this is where you really need to be. This is what you do uh, best. So I got into advertising and then I was creating a lot of commercials. I was uh, creating one minute commercials, half a minute commercials for radio, for television. And then I got into marketing and uh, I started uh, writing brochures and coming up with all kinds of ideas for trade shows and conferences and events. And uh, through all of that, I was writing, but I always thought of myself as somebody who wrote commercially, not for literary reasons. But my husband is the one who finally convinced me, you need to start writing fiction. You are really good at it. I think you would be great at writing novels. So why don't you take some time and do that? That is so cool. I actually, that's one of my questions. I, I know you were doing a lot of art, Where do you believe the visual arts 
intersects with the written art because I have a cousin in India. She's an artist and she does the visual arts and she does all kinds of it. Now, myself personally, I'm working on a novel and I'm all into the written arts. And I keep telling her that you are the artist because you have this visual art. I give me visual and I'm zero. Like I have zero art in me. We keep having this argument. <laughs> and I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to ask you, where do you think their intersection is? And how does that play out? Well, I think that when you draw, uh, okay. one of the first things that you learn in your classes is that you should observe every detail of what is in front of you. So if I am sketching, let's say this Tiffin, all right. Okay. If I'm sketching this Tiffin, I am watching where all of the light is falling on uh, this particular canister. I'm observing where the shadows are. So then when I start drawing, I can make a three-dimensional canister out of this because I'm observing where all the shadows and the light is. Ah. I'm observing uh, how large it is in relationship to my hand. So if I have a hand holding the canister, I want to make sure that the proportions are correct. And then I'm observing all the little details, like, you know, where the indentations are and where uh, the hardware is that goes on this canister. So as I observe all of these details, what I'm training my brain to do is to observe details of life around me. So whenever I'm out and about, let's say I am walking. I am observing all kinds of details. I cannot help myself. I am watching how the leaves of a particular plant are either jagged at the edges or they're smooth or they have a lot of veins in them or they don't have veins. I'm watching the gravel and I'm looking at it thinking, oh, these are very tiny pieces of gravel as opposed to when there are river rocks that I see around me and I see how smooth the river rocks are. So um, I think in observation is when I started observing also people because when you observe people, you not only see what they're saying, but you observe all the things they're not saying. And when you are observing people, you see that their faces aren't always reflecting what they are thinking. That is or so maybe true. Yeah, or maybe their faces are reflecting what they're thinking, but it's not what they're portraying to everybody around them. So these are the ways in which I think an artist intersects with the writer. And so the writer in me watches people. I'm constantly, I cannot even help myself. I just am watching people to see how they're saying something, what they're doing, um, how they are holding a cup, uh, whether there is a fire in the room, whether there is a smell in the room that is of a dog. Maybe there's a dog at their feet and that's what I'm smelling. Maybe there's incense burning and that's what I'm seeing with the smoke that's curling up toward the ceiling. So these are, these are I think, the ways that my artistry has really helped my writing. Wow. You, you know, when we talk art, description, and absolute attention to detail like you're talking about, how do you think that translates to your readers? Because I talk with readers all the time and they're like, oh my gosh, this is like a whole chapter of description. Can we move the story along? And then some people are like, whoa, that description, man, I was there. How do you balance that out? Especially with your book. I mean, you have all the sights and the sounds and the, the smells. 
yeah. of, of food and the henna design, you know, and, you know, just, it's yeah. just like, wow, the cones and you're like, I mean, I remember having henna on my hand and the cool feeling yeah. and reading it, you're there. So it's that balance. How do you balance that out? Well, I think that one of the things that people always say to me is, you know, how did you find that balance? How did you make us feel as if we were immersed in that environment as we're reading these books? Well, it takes time, Shanaz, because, um, you know, my first book, The Henna Artist, took me 10 years and 30 drafts. The Secret Keeper of Japur took me about 11 or 12 drafts. And what you have to do is you have to comb through your work, all the 300, 400 pages that you have written in your first couple of drafts. You have to keep reading it over and over and over. And you want to take out anything that does not serve the development of the character or the development of the story. That's where you find um, the extraneous things that get in the way of the reader. So for instance, I used to read um, a writer by the name of, what was his name? Now, it, now it's escaping me, but he used to have one chapter of history of the period he was writing about. And then the next chapter would be the actual story and the characters. And then he would have history and then story and character. And I would always skip to the story and characters because that's what I was really interested in. Right. And I used to think, why doesn't he just blend the two? What is wrong with blending the two? And so when I started writing historical fiction, I just naturally found it really easy to blend the two because that's what I wanted to read also. Keep in mind that writers are also readers. And so we have spent a lifetime accumulating in our brains what we actually want to see on a piece of paper that is going to engross us in a story. You know, we have spent a lifetime analyzing what we're reading and thinking, uh, you know, this is what I can relate to. I love this. I love these characters. I love the way that this setting is described. This I don't relate to at all. I do not ever want to write like that. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the thing. There is that too close to the blackboard. I'm I'm really old. I'm I'm 49, but uh, you know, too close to the blackboard syndrome that when you're editing your own book, you said you went through 30 drafts. Yeah. I'm only on my third draft, my fourth draft, and I'm getting to a point where I've had people read it and it, I'm not editing much. So I'm going, something's wrong here. Something's okay. majorly wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's because I have authors tell me you cannot edit your own work. You just cannot because you're so close to it. Right. And then Alka Joshi tells me, well, I went through 30 drafts. I edited it. I read it over and over and over again. So Again, where's the balance? Oh, I didn't do all of those drafts uh, by myself. No. Okay. Um, I had people in my MFA program. My instructors went through all of those uh, drafts, some of those drafts, the early drafts. And because that's where I was really writing the first finished uh, piece of The Henna Artist. And then, of course, in every class that you take that is a workshop in creative writing, you're going to have students who are going to go through your work and give you feedback as well. They are your early readers. They will tell you where they're getting hung up in the story, where uh, they've lost interest where they have lost uh, the thread of a character. So those are the early things, early warning signs that teach you how to keep looking at your work through their eyes. 
And then I had another editor in my literary agent. She took on the work basically of an editor. It used to be that publishing houses would have multiple editors. And mm -hmm. so when you sold your work to a publishing house, they would have editors who would go through it and do the work of what my literary agent was doing. But because publishing houses have lost so much staff over time, they have trimmed and trimmed and trimmed. My literary agent said, all right, let me do the first couple of edits for you. So she went through and she said, these characters we don't need to know as much about. We need to know more about Lakshmi, not Malik and Radha. So focus on Lakshmi. She is the more interesting character out of all of these people that you have in your book. Okay. So I took out all the extraneous stuff about the other characters. And then she said, you know what? I'm going to recommend that you take out every other chapter because every other chapter is slowing me down. And so I took out every other chapter, every other she, chapter. Okay. Yeah. And that's very <laughs> painful for a writer to do. It's very painful for a writer to cut out their own work. It's like murdering your own babies. It's very difficult. It's very, it's just, uh, you know, uh, your heart, <laughs> your heart melts. And uh, then she had me redoing the beginning because she said, you know, think about where you are, ground us in the setting first, before you give us a scene where uh, you have two people interacting. This is a story that is taking place in another country, she said. So one of the first things I need for you to do, Alka, is to let us know that we're in India. What is the setting? Where are we? What are the what are the sights and the sounds and the smells of this place? So that's when I redid the, the beginning. And by the way, that wasn't the only beginning that I redid. I did many beginnings. And then she had me do many different endings as well. Now, finally, I get to the point where I say, when do we stop editing? Uh, Emma, <laughs> Emma Sweeney was my literary agent. And uh, I said, at what point are we going to actually send it to a publisher? She said, oh, now I am too close to your novel. I have read it too many times. Ah. You need to get yourself a developmental editor. Hire somebody who has been in either the publishing world or in a literary agency. They will know how to look through your work and tell you what is missing. They will help you get to the finish line. I hired the first literary uh, developmental editor. She went through my work and gave me a lot of story feedback. Like she said, you know, this character could be doing this. Uh, how about if you explore how these two characters could do that together? And then I thought, well, I am at the point now where I don't want to be changing characters. I don't want to be changing their relationships. I'm going to hire another developmental editor because I don't think this first one quite got what I'm trying to do. Okay. So then I hired another developmental editor and then she went through the whole thing. And she actually gave me far more things to consider and look for, not necessarily the relationships between different characters or the arc of different characters, but she had me go more into the internal lives of all the characters. Okay. So I went through all of that. And then finally, I had a draft that I felt really comfortable with. I could see where all of these uh, changes had led me. And then I went back to my literary agent and said, all right. I've done everything you asked me to do. I've done mostly what the uh, developmental editors asked mostly. me to do. Mostly. <laughs> yes, about 85%. Okay. And now I would really like for you to send it off to a publisher, please, before I make any more changes. Because at this point, it's been nine years since I started this project. 
So that's when she sent it off. And then at the publishing house, I had a new editor. And now she went through the novel and had me make some changes as well. So you see, there's a lot of hands that go into the making of a novel. Your friends are not the people to ask for you to evaluate your novel. Your friends will be kind to you. They will be generous. You need to have people who are objective about your work. And for me, those were my instructors. Those were my literary agent. Those were the editors that I hired. And those were the students in the classes that I took. You cannot have your friends and family look through your novel and then consider that to be a final edit. Okay, then. All right. So, okay, okay, okay. I, comp I, I hear you and I've actually heard that, you know, that friends and family, they're going to be nice. And, I, and I've even told my friend that. I point blank told her, I was like, look, you're my friend. You're going to say you like it. She goes, well, that's true, but it's not true. I told you to fix this and this and this. I said, yeah, I agree. You know, so anyway, where does someone like me, just a random person, go about finding all this because the way it sounds to me it's almost sounds like derailing my entire life if I want a book done and I'm not a professional author I'm not a full-time author so what I'm hearing or maybe I heard it wrong is oh schnoz just derail your life forget everything go to an MFA just yeah, just quit everything and just take writing courses, do this, do this, do this. Oh, yeah, and you'll get there. And I'm going, great, I will never have a book at this rate unless I <laughs> retire. Have you ever taken a uh, an evening workshop in creative writing? I have several years ago. So my writing journey is really, I've always wanted to be a writer. Like uh -huh. always, since uh -huh. I was a kid. Okay. It's been a dream when I was actually in dental school in Indiana. Okay. I joined, Indiana had a really good, um, I guess, a writing association. And I was part of it. I took their courses. And we had, I actually formed my own writing group in Indiana, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was doing that. And then I came to St. Louis, I started working on my first novel at that time. Coming to St. Louis, there isn't much of a support system here. And that's my next question to you is because I know you had talked somewhere, I don't know where I saw you mention the importance of mentorship. Where does an introvert writer who's yeah. hiding in their corner writing yeah. find a mentor? And what is the definition of a mentor to you? Because if anything, it needs to be like, and almost an even keel relationship. It's not like a professor student relationship, right? Or no, what am it I is missing? A no, no, no. It is a professor student relationship. My okay. mentors were either my professors or um, the instructor in a writing workshop that I took in the evening. Uh, no, they, it's not an even relationship. No, 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 okay, no. Okay. No, you are reaching for a mentor who has far more experience than you do. They have already been published first, second, maybe three times, maybe they're a seasoned writer. Uh, they have written also articles that have gone into magazines and newspapers. They have uh, participated in writing conferences and been on author panels. 
you need a mentor who has a lot more experience than you do, because at the time that they review your work, they're going to be looking at it from the distance of seasoning, right? So they are going to be able to tell you, oh, right, this is a common mistake that a beginning writer makes. This is what you need to watch out for. Okay, here, what you've done is you have not let us know exactly how it feels for this character to be in their body when they're angry. What does it feel like to be angry for this particular character? These are the kinds of things that a mentor will tell you. And they will be very honest about your work. And they will say, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. I consider my literary agent to also be one of my mentors. Because as much as it frustrated me to not have my work be sent out to publishers, that is what she told me. She said, I am going to hold on to your manuscript until I feel it is ready to be published. And right now it's not ready. And then she would tell me over again, you've made the changes I asked you to, but it's not ready. It's not ready. It's not ready. That's what a good mentor is going to tell you. It's not ready. Not, oh, you've done a great job. This is beautiful writing. You are, you know, you are great. <laughs> That's not what you're looking for. You right. want to know how to improve your work. No, you don't have to go into an MFA program, but I took plenty of evening classes even after my MFA program. You know, I worked during the daytime to pay my bills. Right. And then in the evening, I would often take um, you know, a random class here or there, or a weekend class, which, which met for five weeks or which met for, you know, three months or something. And uh, I would look for classes which were being taught by people whose work I admired. You have to choose your classes, cherry pick them very carefully. You have to cherry pick instructors whom you think are writing something similar to what you have done. Do not pick an instructor in nonfiction work if you're writing fiction. Don't do that to yourself. Okay. You know, pick like versus like. And then also look in the back of every book. In the back of every book, you will find an acknowledgement section. Yes. And in the acknowledgement section, you will find that the author is saying, um, you know, I, I credit my literary agent so-and-so at such and such place. I credit my editor so-and-so at such and such place. Right. When they are crediting all these people, look up those people and find out if they are professional editors who could help you with your manuscript. Because if you liked that particular book, and if you liked the writing in that, and if you feel that that is similar to what you are writing, then those same editors and those same literary agents will be interested in your work. Oh, that's, that's a good way to go about it. I never thought about it. It's like, okay, it's so the research for a writer is to take the book that they like and go through the acknowledgements, look at the name, and then Google those names. Yeah, and then go ahead and Google books that are similar, and then look at the acknowledgement sections of those books. You know, let's say that you're writing about whales. I don't know. You're writing about, you know, whales and their relationships to people, <laughs> you know, whatever. And so what you're going to do is look up all of those books about whales. You're going to go check them out at the library or buy them at the bookstore. And then you're going to go through them and go, oh, that book right there, the relationship between Moby Dick 
and the fisherman. That's the one that I want to write. That is how I want to write my, my book. And then you're going to look at the acknowledgement section and see whom they are crediting. And then other books that are similar that you read, you're going to look at the acknowledgement sections of those. Then you're going to Google because now um, there's so much available on the internet. You're going to go on YouTube and you're going to listen to those writers talking about their journeys. And maybe they're going to mention an editor or two. I always mention my editors whenever I speak to people. These are independent editors and I talk about them. And I think it's important to uh, watch your heroes as writers uh, on YouTube or wherever it is they've spoken at a conference and see what they're saying about the writing process and try to see if you can learn something from that. So who's Nobody your writes. hero? Nobody writes in a vacuum, right? Nobody writes okay, in a vacuum. That, that is true. Except for me, I'm writing in a vacuum and I'm realizing that it's not working. Right. So I got to, you're, you're right. I'm working on, um, I will uh, do my research then. Yeah. But who are your heroes? So, um, you know, I have a lot of different heroes. I have to tell you that my husband is one of my heroes because he is a writer as well. He has written a lot of short stories, not novels. But when I met him, I loved his writing. And um, I just thought, you know, this is the kind of writing I want to do, which makes people feel emotion, which makes people feel sadness or happiness or betrayal or, you know, triumph, whatever. And so my husband, his name is uh, Bradley J. Owens, and he has written a lot of short stories. My mentor in my MFA program was Anita Amirazvani, who wrote a book called The Blood of Flowers, which I absolutely adored. Um, and she's the one who sent my manuscript off to her agent, and, and her agent became my agent. So, um, so that is how it happened for me. Other mentors I have are Janice Cook Newman. Um, she wrote a book about Mary Lincoln, and she's just a really phenomenal teacher. She went through a couple of drafts of the henna artist for me and gave me some really good pointers. I hired her to do that. You know, you have to spend money to make money. You Absolutely. have to spend money Absolutely. to make money. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> a, lot okay. Of, a lot of people think that, um, you know, maybe they don't have to spend the money uh, to make themselves a better writer, but I guarantee you it really uh, accelerates your process when you can hire really good editors to do that for you. So Nobody. you're working one-on-one -on -one then. Yes. You would suggest hiring an editor and so they become like your mentor correct? And you work one-on-one -on -one with them or is that completely a different relationship? So mentors and, and uh, editors that you hire are, can be two very different things. Okay. Mentors are people you look up to. And then, um, you know, so my instructors became my mentors, right? Because I would go to them and I would say, can you tell me based on this comment here that you wrote about my work, can you tell me, can you elaborate on that? Cause I'm not sure I understand it. Okay. And they will spend time and work with you and tell you how to develop that character a little bit better. They will tell you how to, you know, bring your setting to life. Uh, maybe you have described, uh, you know, we're in a room, we're in a bedroom. Well, what does that bedroom look like? What does it feel like? What is the um, detail on the coverlet? 
what are the pictures on the walls? Is this a boy's bedroom? Is this a girl's bedroom? Is this an older person's bedroom? Does it smell of medicine? You know, these are all things you need to ground us in the space. That's what a mentor will tell you. Now, an editor, my editors are people I have personally never met in my life. Oh, wow. I have okay. only found them through referrals and friends. And if you have other writer friends, like you said, you studied writing and you had your own study group, your own writing group that you had started, where are those people? Call them up, find them, uh, find them on, on the internet and say, hey, what are you doing with your writing? Is there an editor that you ever hired to make your work better and would you recommend them? So that's how I found my editors. And then my editors are people I said, would you be interested in looking at my manuscript? Editors have a choice. They don't have to look at your manuscript. Most of them are very busy. They will say, send me the first 30 pages and I'll decide. So you send them the first 30 pages and they will let you know whether they are willing to work with you or not. Even though you're hiring them, they are essentially also hiring you. Oh, wow. So you have to keep that in mind as well. Okay. Well, let's go to your book. Let's talk about the cover art because I'm really fascinated by the look of your book. I mean, I, I didn't even read it, but I just remember the art. And the interesting thing about the art is the henna artist and the secret keeper of Jaipur, very similar, very yeah. similar art. Yes. So, and it has to be because, um, you know, the publisher knows that I'm writing three books and they want them to be similar uh, in feel and in look. If the Secret Keeper of Jaipur hadn't had the same characters as the henna artist uh, or had been a whole different book, they would have designed a very different kind of cover. But um, I don't do the cover art. Very few writers actually do their own cover art. It's the publisher who does that. And HarperCollins has an entire uh, department, an art department that is dedicated to designing covers for all of their authors. But don't you have a say in it? Yeah. Or do you just, or is it like carte, carte blanche? You're like, oh, oh, you took my book. Thank you very much. And then it's like, you wake up one morning and this is the cover you get. No, no, no. Uh, here, I'll show you also the hand okay. artist. You can see how similar the two covers are. Right, uh-huh. So what happens is that um, they will send you as uh -huh. um, the as the creative directors and the writers, I mean, uh, and the um, artists are putting together the covers, they send you several drafts and they say, what about this? Does this feel like the book? Does that feel like the book? And as soon as I saw this one, uh -huh. I said, that is it. That feels like Lakshmi uh, leaving the one of the palaces, palaces after yes. uh, her meeting with the Maharani's. So that is really important for me to be able to convey. So this is uh, what I would love for you to do. And then we worked on finessing this so that the uh, colors are more henna-like. You know? Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The original version has more of a pink feel and I wanted more of a Mandy feel. Yes. So that is why this, this uh, you know, is this kind of color. And it and it 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 just it worked beautifully with the name, with the color, and then with this woman who is walking away from us. 
So then when it came time for the secret keeper of Jabwer, uh-huh. uh, they wanted to have a similar sort of environment for the woman to be in. This woman is Nimi. She is the um, nomad who has gotten involved with the adult Malik. Malik, yes. And uh, Nimi is a nomad. She wears silver jewelry. She wears very different kind of um, jewelry and clothes than uh, the people of Shimla do up in the north. And uh, this is the blue room of the Japur Palace. Okay. So the Japur Palace has, I think, three different rooms inside with three different colors. One of them is a blue room. One of them is a red room. And I think the last one is a yellow room. And so they were having a hard time finding uh, something similar to this for the setting. And I said, how about using the blue room of the Japur Palace? And so then they started doing their research on it and they found a beautiful photograph to buy. And then they married it to this woman, which they Photoshopped in here. Wow. Speaking of Nimi, um, there are a couple of characters that I I don't want to say dislike, but it's because it reminds me of a version of me that I'm still unsettled with. Let's put it that way. And that is Radha in Hannah Artist and Nimi. They have this spirit in them that that I think I had and I still have that I'm just like, Shana, seriously, it's just there's a sense of I know it all kind of a thing. And I don't like that about me. And when I look at Nimi and Radha, they're carving their own path and I'm going, this is what I do. And this is not just stop it. And so, <laughs> like, so here's the question. What are the parallels with Nimi and Radha? Or am I just pulling parallels in? Because I see Nimi not following the protocol. Like she just doesn't listen. And Radha, yeah, there you go. You know, she just goes where she wants to go, at least with the henna artist. She's not yeah. the main, she's not a main character in Secret Keeper, of course. So are there parallels or am I just making this up? No, um, I had not thought of them as parallels. I think what's happening in the henna artist is that 13-year-old Radha has spent most of her life raising herself because her parents checked out so early. And one of the points I'm trying to make about why her father checked out is because uh, he was penalized by the British for having participated in the Quit India movement. As millions of Indians were during that period, uh, they were either imprisoned, they were demoted, they were beaten up, or they were killed. Um, So uh, Lakshmi and Radha's father suffered that fate. And because he suffered that fate, his wife suffered that fate with him because uh, her gold was sold in order to keep the family alive and eating. Um, And so they, so Radha has raised herself. And when she meets up with uh, Lakshmi, what she really wants is an older sister. She wants somebody she can laugh with. She wants somebody who can talk to her about clothes and movies and books. And that's not what Lakshmi thinks her role is. She's 17 years older than Radha. And so her role, she feels, is really that of a mother. She needs to be uh, guiding her toward a, a an adulthood that teaches her how to get along in society. Radha's not having any of that. 
So she looks for the older sister in Kanta, who actually does fulfill that role for her. Right. In The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, we have Nimmi, who is a tribal woman who has left her tribe because she wants her children to be educated. She wants her children to be safe and not have to travel up and down the mountain passes the way that she uh, used to and the, and the reason that she lost her husband in right. one of those mountain passes. So she is actually very much like a younger Lakshmi in the sense that Lakshmi left her husband uh, when she was a young woman and wanted to forge her own path. And so does Nimni. Nimni is just a younger version of Lakshmi, but okay. neither one of them can see that. And uh, so what happens is that, you know, Lakshmi uh, sees that uh, Nimni has, is illiterate. That's not what she wants for Malik. What she wants for Malik and for Radha is to take advantage of this fabulous boarding school education, this private school education that they've both been able to have courtesy of the Sings and um, be able to use that, parlay that into a better life than Lakshmi uh, has uh, had had a chance to have. Right. So uh, she wants Malik to not be with Nimni. And so she's separating the two of them. She is wanting to guide Nimi toward a certain path. If she is going to be with Malik, she wants her to become acceptable to the family. And Nimi is saying, I am whole just the way I am. You do not need to change me. Even if I am illiterate, I belong in this world. I belong in your family. I belong in Malik's life, which is why she is presenting herself in this picture as I belong. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I was I was looking at Nimi. I didn't consider Nimi was a, a version of Lakshmi, but now that you mention it, I'm going, how did I miss that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, Malik is a uh, main character and secret keeper of Jaipur. Yeah. Was that? So here's my question, not just about Malik, but about the trilogy. Did you always know right before henna artist oh i'm going to write this as a trilogy or did after the henna artist people start going i want more about malik and then you're like oh okay okay i'll do a book two and then someone says i want more about radha so then you decide oh i'm going to do a book three about radha is that how that went or did you no. always know or no here is how it actually went okay um remember i told you that my literary agent would not let the henna artist out to publishers until she felt it was ready. Correct. She said, you know, you're a debut author. You have never written an article for a major magazine. You have never written a short story. Your name is nothing on the internet. You know, you, you don't have a presence outside of your business in marketing and advertising. And I said, isn't that enough? She said, no. <laughs> so she said, your debut novel in that case has to hit it out of the ballpark the first go round. Otherwise, we will not get a second book contract or a third book contract. And look at what happened. When the henna artist had been sent to the printers and copy editors and the layout people, that's about a six month process before it was going to show up on people's bookshelves. Okay. So at that point, I started uh, working on another story altogether. And then Malik said, you know, all those pages 
that um, Emma had you cut out of the, of the henna artist, you had like 140 pages that never made it into that novel. Remember every other chapter that got cut out? Well, some of those chapters had a lot of information about me and where I lived in the Pink City and who was raising me and what I did with my free time and also what happened to me 10 years later. So why don't you write about me, write my story? And he was so insistent that I started writing his story because I already knew so much of it. So as I wrote, I wrote the first 20 pages. My uh, agent, I was talking to her one day and she said, send it to me. So I sent it off to her. She sent it off to the publisher and the publisher bought the second book before the first book was even out. So this is exactly what happened the way that Emma, my agent, had wanted to happen. They bought the second book before the first book had even been out into readers' hands. And the second book had only 20 pages. And the second book only had 20 pages. And they bought it with 20 pages. They bought it with the 20 pages and they said, keep going. Here is the advance. So then I kept going with book number two. And uh, then when I was finished with my final draft of book number two, and it was off to my editor at Mira Books, the division Mm -hmm. of HarperCollins, then I told her, I was actually telling book clubs that I had this idea now, now that I'd written about Malik as an adult, there were all of these chapters with information about Radha that I thought I could incorporate into book number three. So my editor at Mira found out what I was telling people and she said, hey, you are thinking of writing a book number three? I said, yeah. And she said, send me a synopsis. (laughs) I sent a synopsis to her and my agent and they bought it for four times the money that they paid for the first book. Amazing. Wow. Congratulations. That's, that's such a beautiful story. That's just right. So, so I think Shana's the moral of that story or the learning that I got from that story was, I don't know everything. <laughs> I, and, and I need everybody else's help to make these books sing. Uh, nobody writes a book by themselves. Nobody can make a bestseller by themselves. It takes a lot of people to make that happen. And in order to get everybody on board with you, you have to be willing to listen to them and to try the things that they're asking you to do. So trying different things that my editors and my literary agent asked me to do did not mean that I had to give up everything that I thought. If they said, you know what, why don't you try giving Hari a redemptive value? Why don't you try making Radha a little more rebellious? And I, and I thought to myself, well, I don't want to do either of those things, but I'm going to try them out of respect for the people who are telling me because they know more than I do. So I tried those things, those two examples in particular that I'm telling you. There were many more examples, but those two examples in particular, and they worked. And they worked better than what I was thinking of doing with them. Right. So you have to listen. You have to collaborate with uh, everybody who is responsible for getting your book out the door. If you do not collaborate, you will not have a bestseller on your hands. Okay. <laughs> I, I hear you. Actually, the book I'm writing right now, or have just finished the fourth draft, whatever, it started off as a short story, I think about 20 years ago, when I took a course in writing, when I was doing my pediatric dental residency, I did a minor in English. 
And I took a course in creative writing at that time. And it was a short story that went through about four or five drafts. And then the course got over. I had the short story. I think I tried to submit it and it got rejected. And I just kind of put it away. Well, fast forward, I married my husband who we were doing a lot of plays together. I was also an actress. And um, he was like, he had a writer group for plays. So this is not your novel writing. This is totally different. So I took the short story and I converted it into a play. So I took that original edited short story, became a play. And then the play went through several drafts, which the original short story, the main character of that short story is actually a secondary character in the main novel. The secondary, the minor character in the first story is everybody wanted to know about her. And she just became this main character. And then this random character showed up and said, I'm here now, by the way, you need to put me in. I said, who are you? She says, I don't care. You put me in. So I said, okay, fine, I'll put you in. Anyway, that was with the play. And it was going through a lot of editions. And I was like, okay, I got to work on this. I understand what they're saying. I just, you know, it's hard. So I put it away. Then a while later, my husband was converting his play into a novel. And I just sat there and I go, that's it. I'm going to convert this entire play, which started off 20 years ago into a novel. So it's like a long process, but I, I feel I just have to find the people who will tell me, I mean, I'm willing to change it. It's just hard to find those people, I think, but I just have to do the research, which is not an issue. So my question is, tell me about, you know, how they say, be careful what you wish for, right? So what was some, uh, what were some, um, I guess, surprises, both good and bad, about becoming Alka Joshi, about becoming this New York Times bestseller, becoming Reese Book Club pick with Henna Artist. What were things you expected, things you didn't expect, good and bad? Uh, I think that, you know, at a time when uh, a lot of authors, well, a lot of people, I think in general, were feeling so isolated and so disconnected from people. I had the opportunity to be launched during a pandemic. Both my books were launched during a pandemic. And so during that pandemic, so many people were feeling like, oh my God, I can't go out, I can't do anything. And I started reaching out to people and saying, look, if you have an e-copy of my book, an audio copy of my books, if you have a book club that you know is reading my um, work, please contact me. I would really like to talk to you. So I have, over the course of the last year and a half since the henna artist came out, I have spoken to about 6,000 people around the world. I have spoken to 564 book clubs. And uh, I've, I've spoken at conferences now that went virtual. I have spoken uh, at book panels where with other authors. I have spoken at virtual talks at bookstores and at libraries. And, uh, you know, for me, it has been an intense time of connection. And I have felt so much hope at a time when a lot of people were feeling hopeless. I feel like, wow, you know, there are so many people around this world who actually want to know about another culture who want to learn about a different group of people than they have ever experienced before, or if they are South Asian or have South Asian heritage, they uh, want to take pride in their heritage, just like we all have a right to. 
And these books are giving them that kind of pride, that knowledge about their heritage, the rich culture they come from. So I think that that has been a huge bonus for me. I have not felt disconnected or isolated at all during the pandemic because every single day I'm talking to people like you, every single day I'm talking to two or three book clubs. So that's been a, an amazing result of uh, having become a full-time author during a pandemic. Uh, the other part was that I hadn't realized that the normal way for an artist to get their work out, which was to go to bookstores and do book signings, is actually uh, less effective than being online and being able to talk to people virtually. Because online, I have been able to talk to people in India, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Geneva, in the Saudi Arabia, in Colombia, in England, in Australia, in New Zealand, everywhere. I can't travel to that many places and still be a sane person. <laughs> you could, you totally could. I mean, you're Alpha Josh, you could, but I'm just kidding. I just, yeah. No, that's right. I mean, that's yeah. crazy that you could do that online. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, you know, um, I think that that has been another sort of an amazing thing that did happen during the pandemic. And I think that I'm always somebody, you know, I ran my own agency for 30 years, my marketing and advertising agency. And I'm somebody who always makes lemonade out of lemons. So regardless of what happens in my life, I know that there's something really fantastic I could do if I just put my mind to it, if I just put my creative energy toward it, I can make it happen. And I think that that belief in myself has always been there. So uh, I think that that helps you when you're a writer too, you know, or a playwright like you are, or somebody who's writing a screenplay, you know, for a movie. Um, I think that, you know, or an artist who is creating, you know, fabulous art, you have to at some point believe in yourself and know that what you're writing about is different or what you're creating is different from what anybody else is doing. There's nobody else who's writing these books about India in the 50s, in the, in the 60s, and in the 70s. So choose choose to create something that no one else is doing. You know, I think one of the reasons that Lin-Manuel Miranda has been so successful with Hamilton is because it's so different from what anybody else was creating and producing. And I think that, um, you know, anytime that you do something like that, you are going to be successful, especially if you get a lot of really good help from people. Okay. I have like, oh my gosh, I could go forever talking to you. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh, you're such a wealth of knowledge. But the question I have for you is, what makes Alka Joshi happy? What does Alka Joshi, that internal person, want in her life? What do you want your legacy to be? You know, I, I actually um, realized what it was when I was talking to Reese Witherspoon. I had watched her uh, Academy Award acceptance in 2006 on TV. And I had thought to myself, I love what she just said. What she said was, I just want to matter in this world. And I think it's something that I have always wanted. And uh, I, I, I knew that I was gonna get there somehow. I just didn't know what form it would take. I have been waiting for this moment. And then when the books came out and they became really successful and I have women writing to me or I should say men also writing to me from all over the world saying, 
I am inspired now to do something different than I have done before. I am inspired by you because I look at your gray hair and I think my life is not over. I am inspired by these books because I think to myself, wow, you know, this is a passion project for Alka. She did this for her mother. Maybe I have a passion project that I gave up all those years ago that I can still uh, dust off and work on. That inspiration and that kind of momentum that people are telling me I may have provided for them, that has made me matter to this world. And that is supremely important to me. You matter in this world, you know, absolutely. It's like you've got all these books, but interesting. I go to the um speaker series here in St. Louis, and I don't remember who the speaker was. It was um, and he was an army person, like a general something. And I'll, re- I'll never forget this. And he talked about how he had to go talk to these troops of which they'd lost half their members that had died, and these young men were looking up to him for inspiration. And he's like, what do you say when they've lost their comrades, their friends? What do you say to these men who are so broken? And I'll never forget this. He said, I shook everyone's hand. I looked them in the eye and I said, make it count. I never forgot that. And when, you know, you said Reese Witherspoon said, I want to matter, you know, it's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what it is. Well, we have like five more minutes, but I want to get through just my top two questions, which I always end with. One is, what are your top five favorite books of all time? And you can't say henna artist or secret keeper of Jaipur. Sorry, your books don't count. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is always a hard question for me to answer, but uh, one of the one of the books has to be how I met you. Okay. And this is the one that I was telling you about. These are stories by my husband. Your Bradley husband. Uh-huh. Owens. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So how I met you by Bradley Owens. And uh, I think Jane Eyre has to be one of my top favorite books. Right. Um, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr is one of my favorite books. Yes. And his new book is coming out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, I think Kay Gibbons wrote a book called Ellen Foster, which is one of my favorite books. Okay. Um, And it's about a a nine-year-old girl who calls herself Ellen Foster because she's being fostered. She doesn't realize that Foster is not her last name. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very poignant. And let's see what else. I loved Pachinko that came out last year by Min Jin Lee. It was such a beautiful saga over four generations. Uh, And it taught me a lot about North Koreans. And then, you know, I really like, I really liked this book I read uh, called Nectar in a Sieve by Kamala Markandaya that was written so long ago. And it was one of the first books I read when I started to write about India, because it really informed me about people growing up in a village uh, and then moving to a city and what that process is like for them. Wow. Okay. What is your life like? What is, give me what your, um, give me what your week is like as an author, a professional author. What is your week like? Like for me, I wake up, I go to work, I come, you know, what is the week 
of a professional author. So when I get up, I make my chai and I have about um, two hours of emails to do. I have people to respond to and I respond to every single email and every single message that I get from readers. Um, I also get a lot of requests for uh, speaking at festivals or you know author panels, conferences, that kind of thing. So I respond to all of that for the first two hours. Um, sometimes uh, at that point also, I will go exercise. So I'll either go to my workout class or I'll go walking or I'll go for a bike ride. And then um, I will, you know, clean up, shower and, uh, you know, do some writing or talk to my husband or, you know, whatever. I'll have lunch with my husband, whatever. And then um, in the evenings uh, after that, I will spend about three to four hours on social media. You know, uh, the life of an author is hard work. It's hard work. It is constant. And you have to stay in touch with people and you have to be responsive because think about yourself as a reader. If you ever wrote to a writer and they never wrote you back how that felt, I write to every single person because I want them to know I heard them. They matter. It's important for me that uh, they wrote to me. And uh, then I might uh, spend some time talking to my family or talking to a friend uh, and I'll watch binge watch something on television or uh, one of the streaming channels because actually we haven't had a TV now for 20 years. Okay. Wow. It sounds like a lot of work. And as a reader, as even as a podcaster trying to get a hold of an author, really appreciate you responding. You know, that's, that's huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Last, last question. Okay. Describe your, I'm going to say books because it's a trilogy. So it's similar. Describe your books in three words. Hmm. Okay. A rich heritage. A rich heritage. Oh my gosh. I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Wow. Thank you. That's, that's a great question. I'm going to remember that question. That's a good question for me to ask other authors too. I found, I don't know where I found that question. I, um, I'll find my questions randomly on Instagram. Sometimes a book publisher will post a question and uh-huh. that's where I found like top five books. Sometimes I'll vary it like top, your top favorite authors, you know, all of that. So, yeah, but, like uh, but thank you. I, I don't want to, so you know, welcome. I don't want to monopolize your time. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shanaz. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. Bye. That was Alka Joshi. Wasn't she amazing? Okay, I do want to let you all know that you are welcome to invite Alka to your book club, your bookstore, your library, invite her for an author talk, a discussion. She can be reached at www.alkajoshi.com That is www.alkajoshi.com And I'm sure that when you chat with her, you'll have just as much fun as I did. And that's all I have for this time. But before I go, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me 
the easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTBpodcast. I thank you for your support. If you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please write me a review on Apple Podcasts. I can be reached at livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. I've added other ways to contact me in the show notes. I've also added the code for the Libro FM 2 for 1 special. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. <laughs>